Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Welcome back to The Enemies List, folks. My guest today is retired Army Colonel Alex Vindman. Alex is a person who is famous for having stood up during the Trump administration and said, stop this corruptness. Stop this BS. You're engaging in things that are putting American national security at risk. And for that, he faced the ire and enmity of a certain former president twice impeached, in part because of the things he was doing regarding what Alex reported. He is also an American citizen who was born in Ukraine and has a deep, deep knowledge of the country, has been deeply involved in understanding where Ukraine's journey is taking it, and as his views right now and his, his knowledge right now, I think is especially relevant for all of us because he is the subject matter expert on Ukraine. He has just returned from a trip over there. And Alex, welcome to the enemies list. Of course, it is great to see you as always, and welcome as a, as a new Florida resident it, joining us in the madhouse. But what I wanted to talk to you about, first off, Give us the state of play in Ukraine as it is right now. The last time you and I talked, things were a little shakier. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Always always good to see you. And uh, a question for you to mull over. Which enemy are we talking about here? Are we talking about Russia and Putin? Are we talking about <laughs> uh, Trump and Trumpism? Just something to consider here. Well, you know, they, they're, all, they're all bundled into one big package. A lot of similar, striking similarities, actually. And a badge, a badge of honor right. to uh, run uh, at cross-purposes uh, with any of them. But just came back from, from Ukraine uh, just uh, s- several days ago. A couple of weeks on the ground, I had a uh, you know, large series of objectives. I, I just finished up my doctoral dissertation, so I'm converting that, that work into a book. The way I finished up my my study was back at, uh, wrapping it up in the Orange Revolution in 2004. Not very satisfying when there's a war in 2022 right. and 2023. So I went there and talked to basically all of the senior leadership in Ukraine to get their views on on uh, what the situation is, whether relationships with the U.S. have substantially improved. The short answer is not as much as you would think. I was also there delivering a bunch of aid, the first tranche of three and a half million dollars in gear to the uh, Ukrainian National Guard. Also trying to fine tune my right. own understanding and analysis of, of what's going on because I talk about this topic incessantly, according to my wife, and want to make sure I've, I've got a good beat on what's going on. When I engage with Congress and the White House, I'm, I've got you know, what, what amounts to ground truth. 
So what did I learn? First of all, the margins are too thin. Ukraine is absolutely surviving. Its uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity will remain intact, but the margins are too thin. Uh, right now, the Ukrainians are having a heck of a hard time breaking through Russia's uh, defensive lines. Uh, they, the Russians defense right. invested in huge resources, massive minefields, long trenches, kind of think about World War II or World War I era trenches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the Ukrainians are having a hard time in spite of the fact that they've gotten some advanced equipment, but they didn't get all that they needed or in the quantities that they needed. A lot of things that were promised weren't delivered. A lot of it had to do with mine clearing and obstacle breaching type gear. So they're having a heck of a hard time. At the same time, they're destroying swaths of Russia's manpower. The key to this war is actually not necessarily territorial gains in the short term, but it's the destruction of the Russian military. And once they achieve significant destruction of the, the Russian military, they'll have an easier time of breaking through lines and liberating territory. My question is, do the Ukrainians run out of steam before the Russians run out of steam? And that's why I think the, the margins are too thin. It shouldn't be this close. It's possible that we might, might end up with the worst case scenario, which is Ukrainians taking back small chunks of territory, but nothing super meaningful. I'm still cautiously optimistic that the Ukrainians are going to achieve what, what amounts to me as kind of the base case, that the Ukrainians do achieve right. substantial operational gains, make things really, really difficult for Russia, whether that's through destroying this bridge that they attacked again recently or threatening Russia's ability to kind of move freely all those types of things. That's probably the most likely scenario. The wishful scenario is is increasingly unlikely where the Ukrainians completely destroy the Russian military and this war comes to an abrupt halt before the end of the year. I think we're we're going to continue to in a way muddle through this this year, maybe into next year. There have been big picture uh, geopolitical issues that have emerged. Putin's own fragility when when he had his own insurrection uh, that he has to deal with that frightened probably right. swaths of the of of the Biden administration and the West with this mirage of a of a Russian failed state and who comes in to replace him. I think in a rather ineffective NATO summit in Vilnius just this past couple of weeks that instead of offering membership to Ukraine to 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 kill this dream of a long war scenario for Putin that he could just wait out the West. Uh, we we killed. We didn't. We weren't able to achieve that. Instead, we offered uh, a path to Putin where Ukraine isn't a member of NATO and can't become a member of NATO until the war is over, which is a recipe for perpetual war. So a lot of things right. happening. Uh, he, but that's he'll, the, he'll make summary. it a frozen conflict if we do that, sure. right? Yeah. So the counteroffensive, as you noted, is, you know, it, it has been slower than a lot of people wanted, and certainly, you know, everyone wanted. The, the Russians to roll up and roll back and push back over the border. But they really, as as somebody said to me the other day, he goes, if there's one thing you can count on the goddamn Russians to have, it's a surplus of artillery, ammunition, and mines. You know, they they, they clearly have, have burned through the best of their military, but they it's not that that but that doesn't mean they don't have, you know, in-depth minefields and trench works and a lot of cannon fodder parked in those trenches. And you still can't you still can't, if you're Ukraine, go and, and just and just play the attrition game one for one on that kind of thing. The Russians are just a bigger a bigger country. So let me ask you this. There, there's been a lot of questions about the flow of, of Western weapons, of, of American and Western weapons into Ukraine. It seems like some of the more advanced, the Atacams, the Storm Shadows, and, and other 
longer range things are starting to augment the high Mars and other stuff. Is that changing the ball game? Do you think uh, at this point? It is not. I think there is no single kind of exquisite capability that's going to change the ball game. It's a, it's a suite of different capabilities together employed effectively mm-hmm. in what, you mm-hmm. know, in the military called combined arms, that's, that's going to be the game changer. Right. Right. And it's not entirely clear whether the Ukrainians, as much as they have advanced, they're very, very different military than the Russians are sufficiently capable of employing combined arms. Sure. But their hands are tied because they don't have planes. Their ha- hands are, are tied because we haven't offered them uh, attackums or long-range drones. And with the things that we have, have right. come through in relatively modest quantities. So we need to obviously push harder for U.S. national security to help Ukraine win, to de- de- deliver a blow against Russian aggression and kill this basic notion that Putin could wage war in Europe, implicating European Euro-Atlantic security and get away with it. And, and we're not doing that. But there are other there are isn't that, isn't that the weirdest part of this equation is so many people don't connect aiding Ukraine and blocking further Russian aggression. They don't. They still haven't learned the lessons of, of what Russia is and under Putin after all this time. It's striking to me that even in our own State Department, there are people who are still like, oh, wait, we got to go slower than that. We can't we can't do too much. We have to be you know, we have to measure. This. It's not like the bad behavior hasn't already happened on yep. Putin's part. Well, he, the worst case scenario, what's he going to do? Invade one of the largest countries in Europe? Well, yeah, he just did. Yeah. So I think that's a, a good point. Uh, but I would also say that we haven't learned the lessons of, uh, of the dangers of authoritarianism in our own country which is a, maybe a topic for later on in the conversation. Correct. And that there are swaths. I mean, we're talking about. I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> substantial portions of the population that don't get what the threats are. I'd say that in a lot of ways, the State Department has actually been pretty good. I think there are other institutions that have been, uh, frankly, a little bit more problematic. Uh, the Department of Defense tends to be overly bureaucratic mm. and, uh, you know, says that there's sure. only so many equipment that we could offer, so much equipment we could offer. We need to hold it back for our own fight against Russia. Well, how likely is a fight against Russia when Russia is basically all in in Ukraine and getting its getting wrecked in Ukraine? There is not going to be a fight against Russia, not at the conventional level. So those types of the kind of really right. bureaucratic answers don't make sense. At the national level, with the National Security Council, that these misplaced fears of a somebody worse than Putin replacing him. I guess there's a world in which that's possible, but how much worse can you get uh, than uh, a major world level <laughs> right. war and uh, attacks on U.S. democracy, attacks on NATO's flank and large scale war in Europe? The and, and amazing amount of nuclear saber rattling. I mean, how much worse really can you get? There are uh, scenarios in which a a complete lunatic comes in, but that's those are remote, you know, nearly impossible scenarios. I think the fact is we have to deal with the reality that we have a uh, a dictator in Russia that's increasingly aggressive and threatening U.S. national security. And we have to deal with the issue at hand, not hem and haw over potential worse scenarios, including like the the collapse of Russia and uh, loose nuke scenarios. We went through the collapse of Russia once before, folks, and while there were some close-ish calls, it wasn't anything to the apocalyptic level that I think some people in the U.S. have believed that Putin goes. It's not that Putin is this picture of Western democracy, liberalism, and and, and he's just misunderstood. He's a genuinely bad post-Soviet 
figure. Yes, there are there are a handful of people crazier than Putin, but there are also a lot of people that would be more likely, as you note, that it seems like that fear to me is at least a little bit overblown. They would all sure. be even the lunatics would be similarly constrained. They're not suicidal lunatics. They're not uh, uh, lunatics that are uh, right. prepared to wage nuclear war because of mutually assured destruction. So they're they're similarly constrained to Putin, except they would actually start with a weaker base. Putin's been in power for decades and in, mm-hmm. in, a, in that manner right. has a very, very effective means of controlling the various factions. Less effective, as we noticed, because he had the internal insurrection. He's starting to get subject to criticism by senior military but he's still more effective than probably just about anybody else that comes in because he's been that effective conductor for so long. Other folks are going to have to deal with all sorts of different factions. So, I mean, the, the worst case scenarios, these nightmare scenarios are just not plausible and they shouldn't be the way we, we conduct policy around, you know, negligible possibility events when we have real right. challenges in front of us that we have to deal with. Right, we've got we've got high probability, lower impact problems than than the you know the nightmare scenario. Exactly. So speaking of the weapons flow, I know that it is the, the provision of an Americans allowing our European allies to do a loan, a lease, whatever the ter- term is for F sixteens and air power. I know that is still many many months off, and many people are banging the drum to get that moving faster. I know. Is that really where the Russians still have a have a sort of critical advantage on the battlefield? Because the combined ar- Western combined arms, as you know, was always sure. heavily dependent on an integrated, you know, air, uh, power. air power, you know, overhang. And Ukraine just doesn't have that at scale. So, you know, what, what it comes down to is you need to have the reason that planes, F-16s or F-18s are important are not because they're effective at destroying Russia's own planes and reducing Russia's advantage in, in right. planes. That's a, a relatively far-fetched notion. Uh, the Russians have quite a few planes. Uh, it's not even because they're going to be highly effective yeah. at na- knocking out drones or cruise missiles that Russia uses to rain terror on Ukrainian cities. It's mm-hmm. actually because they provide, they're effectively able to suppress Russia's use of helicopters and, and uh, close air support Correct. aircraft, the ones right. that are actually operating on the front lines, right. the ones that are dropping bombs on advancing troops, the ones that are using anti-tank missiles from beyond the range of stingers or other tactical air, air defense systems. That's why you mm-hmm. need planes, because they're flying cover overhead. Yes, they're taking out potentially taking out planes and threatening planes and, and, and drones, but they're really suppressing Russia's ability to withstand the assault from the Ukrainian ground forces as they advance. So that's why it's an important capability. Right. That right. with that's HIMARS, right. with artillery, with air defense systems that we have in greater quantities coming in, suppressing Russia's uh, aircraft at uh, longer ranges. Those all together are meaningful capabilities. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's one of those things I was thinking about this the other day uh, when you mentioned it also. In the in the first Gulf War, I, I think it's about 50% of our air-to-air kills were, were Iraqi helicopters. It, it, was, sure. it was not just that we were whacking out their MiGs. It was a lot of a lot of their helicopters on the battlefield, and that's where, yeah, I think that's right with the with the the F sixteen is, is a suppressing force for their for their low level and their local air. We talked a little bit about there's a sort of division in America right now. There seems to be a less strong now, but still pretty large coalition of Democrats, Republicans in the country, not necessarily in Congress, who generally believe we should be helping Ukraine. 
there's an increasingly vocal sort of, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it, but sort of a fifth column in this country who's saying, you know, we should pull out and whether it's JD Vance or David Sachs at Twitter or any of the other people that are mm-hmm. out there, yeah. see Bannon cheerleading for the immediate end, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the immediate end of American uh, assistance to Ukraine. Where do you think that coalition is? Where do you think it's, uh, where do you think it stands in six months from now? Because I'm wondering if you think this is going to become an issue in this election uh, as this war goes on and as people start to, I hope, realize what the stakes are. Yeah, I think uh, six months from now will be the window where things start to get increasingly complex. I think we have, you know, over the next six months between now and the first couple months of next year, we are likely to continue to enjoy some some broader support as we get into campaign season. I, I fear that. Even the moderate Republicans that are going to be facing challenges from their MAGA wing and over mm-hmm. the, the, this idea of supporting Ukraine instead of uh, U.S. domestic programs at home is going to become a bigger issue. So what, what that means is, you know, the Department of Defense has resources allocated through 30 September, through the rest of this fiscal year. It was this $45 billion that, that uh, the Biden administration was, had the foresight to kind of uh, secure back in December. We may very well, you know, future proof it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Future appropriation. Most of that money, by the way, went to the U.S. and U.S. defense firms to replenish kind of stocks of old gear that was given away to the Ukrainians with new fancy sure. stuff that's, you know, incredibly more capable of destroying our enemies. But still, uh, it's still that <laughs> right. that that was an important appropriation. Now we're going to we're going to face another round of appropriation. We'll see. I, I think I'm modestly confident that we'll get one more round of funding for Ukraine uh, that will allow them to sustain the war effort. But as we get beyond that six month mm-hmm. horizon, it's going to get very, very challenging. And the reason is that, you know, you'll have the the American spirit very much identified with the Ukrainian struggle for freedom and independence. Uh, you know, sure. whether that's that our, our kind of DNA about fighting, fending off colonial powers, whether it's just the kind of the, the uh, basic struggle that the Ukrainians had to chart their own path without being subject to, to the whims of, uh, of the Kremlin, that spoke to the American public. And it probably smoke, spoke to swaths of, of MAGA even uh, because the support was, was pr- quite high mm-hmm. for, for much of that first six months year. But it's eroded because the, that population has been effectively propagandized by the likes of Bannon and McCarthy right. and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you hear, you know, the reason propaganda is uh, uh, is used is because it's effective. And you repeat the, a message enough times, you right. repeat false messages about Ukraine's corruption or that, you know, Ukraine is the, the bad actor and uh, Russia is the good actor. It was the U.S. that that was that precipitated this war. You know, just absolutely absurd notions. You repeat right. them the, enough times. The, mm-hmm. Yeah. People people that don't follow this closely will start to kind of repeat that and it'll reverberate in their minds and they'll start to, and that, that's where you have a really kind of weakening of positions. And this is not just a uh, far right issue, actually a far, the far left, uh, there are uh, slivers of oh, the sure. far left that also mm-hmm. have misgivings about support to Ukraine on again, similar notions that it was the U S that's been, it's the, it's actually a, an anti-American notion that the U S is the bad actor. I don't understand how this plays right. with the MAGA crowd, but somehow to them, it's appealing to say that the U.S. was the bad guy all along and the U.S. caused it. But you have the same the thing state. on the right. Yeah, it's a deep state. So you have these factions that are kind of coalescing against what I like coalescing around the cut and run policy of 
Let's mm-hmm. just leave Ukraine and let them figure it out on their own without taking account uh, of the massive impact that would have on European security, where we have concrete obligations to come to the aid of our allies sure. when they eventually get attacked by Russia that could be successful in, in you know pulling out a win in Ukraine would be the worst case scenario, frankly, one of the worst case scenarios. I do think there's been some, I would say there's been a meaningful improvement in America's image in, in Europe and NATO after in the post-Trump era. I've talked to a lot of folks over there, you know, friends and allies of ours in the UK and Germany, uh, in Italy. I've know, I know, uh, you know, a lot of folks who sense that we're, that, that we're back on a stronger footing vis-a-vis NATO. What are your thoughts about where NATO stands right now? I think, I think it's improved. I don't know if, what you, if you agree with that or not. And I think the accession of Sweden into NATO does sort of change the Russian calculus a little bit because, I mean, that is a military designed to do one thing, and that's kill Russians. Yep. Um, so And, and changes know, their some of their, their Baltic equation. Sure. sure. So first, I think there's a bigger picture about, you know, the fact that we still get side eye from NATO and the d- democratic world that our next election is going to have is going to be a contest between you know a pro democratic figure and a patently mm-hmm. anti democratic figure they are like okay what if one off they could almost say like we we we've had our troubled histories ourselves but uh they are definitely leery of a, a second trump administration or a ron DeSantis administration that's basically you oh, know for sure tr- trump like uh anyway so I think there is there is a cautious, wary optimism about what the U.S. is, especially with the re- recovery of our standing and our leadership. Right. I think from a much more kind of narrow role around Ukraine, I have a, so a bone to pick with the this with our uh, Biden administration. What I think is frankly a a soft position uh, in support of Ukraine, one that's again uh, subject right. to fears instead of realities, and uh, instead of leading like we tend to do as the world's sole superpower following and being a poor follower at that, uh, as indicated by this last summit. But in general, I think the fact is that the U.S. has an indispensable role, whether that's the arsenal of democracy, uh, that the resources, nobody else could have provided the resources for Ukraine's defense the way we, we could. Our cachet as no, the no, uh, world leader, in spite of our, our, our challenges, domestic challenges, our democratic chops are, are essential to uh, the future of, mm-hmm. of the world and the world order. Uh, so I think there's hope and optimism, but also kind of a, a, a caution about the U.S. future. That'll be determined, you know, by t- by uh, fall of 2024. Uh, our standing will be pretty clear. Right. I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things that is has been a longstanding of friends in Europe, they're, they've rolled their eyes. I mean, at first, especially in 15 and 16, they're like, oh, come on, this is a joke. This can't be real, right? And as it became real, as it became more stark in its impact on our country and the world, I think you're right. I think there is still a certain degree of like, come on, this can't be who you guys really are in America, right? This is This can't be who you really are. Sadly, it is kind of who we really are right now. I mean, we are at risk. And I think I think as you've seen in in your studies of international security, this is a, a real test for us. Ukraine is a real test for the West on whether they're going to hold together as an alliance and hold together as a as a force for good in the world. 
I think sometimes, uh, you know, my background is uh, as a refugee uh, came over to, to the U.S. when I was three mm-hmm. and a half years old from from the Soviet Union, from the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. But I grew up in the U.S., uh, you know, New York City kid, and, and then served decades in the military. And my first thought is about U.S. national security. And to me, this is all about U.S. national security. Right. I mean, I get less questions about from the Ukrainians in general about what my motives are than from MAGA, uh, the MAGA wing of, of the U.S. That, sure, you know, of will course. try to hang, hang yeah. this these these uh, you know disloyal labels around me. They're, the Ukrainians all you know at every every level they understand my roots, but they understand that they're talking to an American and that my interests are on you know helping American the Ukrainians, officer, right? Yeah, helping U- Ukraine win for the purpose of securing. Yes, the U.S., Ukraine also from a humanitarian standpoint, but really, frankly, kind of a rules-based world order, NATO's flank. To me, this is apparent and something that uh, even if you follow kind of what I've said all the way back to the impeachment, I talked about this from a U.S. national security perspective. A lot of my colleagues, superb colleagues, talked about you know why it was important to help Ukraine. And I t- my entire commentary was about why Ukraine was important to U.S. national security and what the threats were to U.S. national security. So to me, there is no doubt that a Ukrainian victory is a, a victory for the U.S., is a brushback to a, a militarized authoritarian uh, world in which the strong prey on the weak. And we could do that for pennies on the dollar by supporting Ukraine. The cheapest right. of investments for right. for a small like, sliver of our of our national gross domestic product and a a relatively modest amount of our defense budget, we've helped Ukraine wreck the entirety of Russia's conventional military and shot across the bow to to all authoritarian regimes that, you know, they they can't undertake these kinds of adventures without cost. And being able to, and preventing those regimes, Russia is a country that's three times the size of Ukraine in terms of population. More than three times the size. Mm-hmm. Russia could, if fully mobilized and with cutting support to Ukraine, could potentially still snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat. And the, the, the reversal that would be for the U.S. and U.S. national security is really hard to quantify. It is It would be d- yeah, a disaster that would right. govern the 21st century. So this is a must-win, non-negotiable I, situation. I completely agree. Well, Alex Venman, thank you so very much for coming today on the Enemies List. We really appreciate your time, my friend, as always. Look forward to seeing you soon in the great state of Florida. And uh, we will talk to you again next time. Thanks again. Sounds good. Thanks, Rick. On today's Enemies List, no labels. Look, folks, no label sells themselves as do-gooders, centrists, moderates, the nice people. We just want to bring civility back into po- It's a fucking lie. It's a lie. No Labels yesterday held the kickoff of their 2024 presidential campaign bid. It's not to really elect Joe Joe Manchin or John Huntsman or anybody else. Their ticket has been put together to re-elect Donald Trump. No Labels has admitted it. They know they can't win 270 electoral college votes. They know their own polling says that if they put their third-party candidate, no matter who it is in the field, that person's going to draw more from Joe Biden than Donald Trump. They're specifically going into key electoral college states where they're going to try to defeat Joe Biden by handing this election to Trump by stealing away a handful of voters here and a handful of voters there. Now, as Americans, do they have every First Amendment right to do this? Absolutely. But they shouldn't lie to people. 
They shouldn't BS people about what they're about. Because Mark Penn, the mastermind, the architect, the Svengali behind No Labels, he's a pissed off guy. He was fired by Bill and Hillary Clinton, and he hates them. He swore revenge. He was not hired by Barack Obama because the Clintons told him who this guy was. He swore revenge. Joe Biden wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. He swore revenge. What did he do? He went on Fox and became Trump's biggest Democratic cheerleader. He advised Trump in the White House on secret visits in the White House on avoiding impeachment. This organization is funded by Republican billionaire megadonors. The same guys who are writing checks to Ron DeSantis are writing checks to no labels. The same people who fund Clarence Thomas's lifestyle are funding no labels. This is a group that is at the pinnacle of cynicism, the pinnacle of danger to this country. They are going to reelect Donald Trump unless Americans stand up and stop them. Now, they're going to be on this list for a long time. You will not be you will not be hearing the last of my no labels ranting this year. But I want to make sure that everybody understands what this is. They're not do-gooders. They're not moderates. They're not centrists. They're not the people giving American voters more options. They're giving you one option. It's an orange criminal who lives in a mansion in Palm Beach County, Florida. No labels elects Donald Trump, and they will therefore stay on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah but you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.